when everything is set up the way it is supposed to be, then blessings flow down and go out the way they were meant to do. God can always be relied on, but you need a covenant mediator doing what he is supposed to do, and you need a covenant community doing what they are supposed to do. And for this moment, in this snapshot, everything is functioning the way it should. Instructions have been given and followed to the letter. The people have done just as the Lord commanded them, and they are blessed. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. The universe has been hardwired by God to receive the blessings of heaven through the obedience of God's people. It's a pretty simple setup, but as the story of the Old Testament reveals, the times when that system has been working perfectly have been few and far between. But in this passage, we catch a glimpse of how things were supposed to be and of how things will be again because of the life, death, and perfect intercession of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love you to open it now to Exodus chapter 39. This is the last chapter in that section of the book of Exodus that basically repeats material from earlier in the book. Chapters 35 to 39 largely repeat material first introduced in chapters 25 to 31. In chapters 25 to 31, the material is given in the form of commands, build this, manufacture that. Whereas in chapters 35 to 39, we have the record of construction. So it is the same material, but it is presented in a slightly different way. They built this, they made that. And the key line, which is repeated several times in this chapter, is the statement that everything that was done was done precisely as the Lord commanded Moses. You will hear some version of that expression seven times in this chapter alone. And of course, there's a life lesson there for us. Very often, God uses a season of spectacular sin and apostasy to instill in us an appropriate fear and loathing toward idolatry and rebellion. Sometimes human beings have to fail, and they have to be allowed to fail, before they hate sin and love precise obedience. Precise obedience feels like a burden until you have done things your way and almost made shipwreck of your life. Then all of a sudden, Precise obedience is a joy. And that is exactly what is happening in this chapter. The people are delighting to do exactly as the Lord commanded Moses. Thanks be to God. We'll begin reading the story at verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. From the blue and purple and scarlet yarns, they made finely woven garments for ministering in the holy place. They made the holy garments for Aaron, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He made the ephod of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. And they hammered out gold leaf, and he cut it into threads to work into the blue and purple and the scarlet yarns, 
and into the fine twined linen in skilled design. They made for the ephod attaching shoulder pieces joined to it at its two edges. And the skillfully woven band on it was of one piece with it and made like it of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, as the Lord had commanded Moses. They made the onyx stones, enclosed in settings of gold filigree, and engraved like the engravings of a signet, according to the names of the sons of Israel. And he set them on the shoulder pieces of the ephod to be stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel as the Lord had commanded Moses. Chapter 39 as a whole corresponds quite closely with chapter 28 as a whole. Again, in chapter 28, you get the instructions. And then here in chapter 39, you get the precise obedience to those instructions. Everything is being done just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Thanks be to God. The content in this particular paragraph corresponds to the instructions given in Exodus 28, verses 2 to 14. In both cases, the colors mentioned, gold, blue, purple, and scarlet, were all associated with royalty back in those days. So, these are royal vestments being made for priests who will function like household servants. That's the irony or the oddity, however you want to conceive of it. The priests in the kingdom of God are dressed like kings, but they function like servants. There is dignity and there is humility. To the first-time visitor, the priest would look like a prince, and yet he would be trimming lamps and turning meat on the barbecue, tasks that normally would be conducted by a servant. So the visitor would wonder, what sort of kingdom is this? because there was nothing quite like it anywhere else on planet Earth. And of course, that prepares us, doesn't it, for some of the odd things that Jesus said about leadership in the kingdom of God. He said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Matthew 20, verses 25 to 28. So things are different here in the house of Yahweh. Thanks be to God. Hey, Pastor Paul, I'd love to pause here if we can, because I just love the imagery here in this passage about leadership. I love the idea of priests who are dressed like princes and who serve like servants in the house of the Lord. This may be how it is supposed to be, but I'm not sure how often it actually works out this way in day-to-day practice. Yeah, well, this is an idealized picture. The tabernacle, remember, was built against a heavenly blueprint. So in essence, it is showing us how things are supposed to be, not necessarily how things are. The ideal in terms of kingdom leadership is supposed to combine elements of extreme dignity and extreme humility. And of course, the best example of this comes to us in terms of the person and work of Christ. Jesus was maximally exalted. He had maximum dignity. And yet he himself said, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve 
and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus nailed both sides of this idealized portrait. As you would expect. Yeah, as you would expect. Yeah. Because all of these Old Testament stories and structures are intended as illustrations in advance foreshadowing and anticipating his life and work. Yeah, so it would be weird if Jesus didn't exemplify this perfectly. Yeah, and and of course, thankfully, he does. In John 13, we have a picture of what this looks like in actual practice. It is the night leading up to Jesus' betrayal and arrest. John tells the story this way. He says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him, closed quote. Did you catch the connection there? Jesus knew who he was. He knew where he was going. He understood his identity, his dignity, and therefore he rose from supper and began to serve his disciples. His dignity wasn't an obstacle to humble service. Rather, his dignity enabled his humble service. That's how it's supposed to work in the kingdom of God. Real kingdom leaders know who they are. They are secure in their dignity. And out of that place, they're able to endure great hardship and humiliation in order to serve and care for the people of God. So does that picture, does does that ideal apply only to pastors and elders, or does it apply to all Christians? Well, that's a fantastic question. In, in general, I would say that in the tabernacle narratives, anything that is said about the high priest is intended as an advanced illustration of the person and work of Jesus, and Jesus only. There's only one high priest in the New Covenant era. But the stories and imagery around the priesthood generally can, I think, reasonably be applied to Jesus and to all his true disciples. That certainly seems to be how the apostles understood these things. Peter, for example, said in 1 Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So Peter here seems to be picking up this imagery exactly. He calls these Christians a royal priesthood. Priests who are dressed like princes. He says that about regular believers, not not just about Jesus and not just about elders and pastors exclusively. So I would argue that all Christians are to think of themselves as royal priests who are called upon to serve in the house of God and who should therefore understand themselves as people of incredible dignity and nobility. And because of that, out of that, should be willing to serve God's people in humble and lowly ways, following the example of Jesus, our great high priest. In fact, Jesus makes that point explicitly in John 13. After washing the disciples' feet, a job normally given to the servant who is lowest on the household totem pole, he says, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your your teacher and your Lord have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you, closed quote. So Jesus does this perfectly, but we are to follow his example by the grace and with the help that he supplies. 
All right, that makes sense. Let's jump back into the text now at verse 8. He made the breastpiece in skilled work, in the style of the effort of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. It was square. They made the breastpiece doubled, a span its length, and a span its breadth when doubled. And they set in it four rows of stones, a row of sardius, Topaz and carbuncle was the first row, and the second row, an emerald, a sapphire, and a diamond, and the third row, a jacinth, an agite, and an amethyst, and the fourth row, a barrel, an onyx, and a jasper. They were enclosed in settings of gold filigree. There were twelve stones with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel. They were like signets, each engraved with its name for the twelve tribes. And they made on the breastpiece twisted chains like cords of pure gold. And they made two settings of gold filigree and two gold rings and put the two rings on the two edges of the breastpiece. And they put the two cords of gold in the two rings at the edges of the breastpiece. They attached the two ends of the two cords to the two settings of filigree. Thus they attached it in front to the shoulder pieces of the ephod. Then they made two rings of gold and put them at the two ends of the breastpiece on its inside edge next to the ephod. And they made two rings of gold and attached them in front to the lower part of the two shoulder pieces of the ephod at its seam above the skillfully woven band of the ephod. And they bound the breastpiece by its rings to the rings of the ephod with a lace of blue, so that it should lie on the skillfully woven band of the ephod, and that the breastpiece should not come loose from the ephod, as the Lord had commanded Moses. This section here Dealing with the manufacture of the breastpiece corresponds to Exodus 28, 15-28. This section is actually almost a verbatim duplication of that content in chapter 28, the only real difference being the verb tenses. You will recall from that chapter that the breastpiece was basically a square pouch decorated with 12 precious stones, each stone representing one of the 12 tribes. The pouch itself held the Urim and Thummim, which were used in some way to determine the will of God when the will of God was not clearly known from Scripture. When the Israelites needed to know, should we attack that hill over there, or should we make an alliance with this particular foreign nation, they were supposed to consult the Urim and Thummim. Now, we aren't exactly sure how that worked. But by means of this process, the high priest was able to determine the direction of the Lord. Regardless of the fine details, the basic symbolism of the breastplate is pretty straightforward. It is a reminder of the essential nature of the priesthood. A priest, and particularly the high priest, spoke to God on behalf of the people and to people on behalf of God. And of course, all of that symbolism lands climactically upon the person of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. He is our great high priest. He speaks to God on our behalf. He ever lives before the Father to make intercession for us, according to Hebrews 7.25. And of course, he speaks the word of God to us. He is the word of God to us. So this symbolism, 
again, despite some of the confusion around the fine details, points obviously and gloriously to Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. We jump back into the story at verse 22. He also made the robe of the ephod woven all of blue, and the opening of the robe in it was like the opening in a garment, with a binding around the opening so that it might not tear. On the hem of the robe they made pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. They also made bells of pure gold and put the bells between the pomegranates all around the hem of the robe, between the pomegranates, a bell and a pomegranate, a bell and a pomegranate around the hem of the robe for ministering as the Lord had commanded Moses. This section corresponds to the instructions given in Exodus 28, 31 to 35. These verses now describe the manufacture of the robe over which the ephod vest was worn. As you will recall, there were little bells sewn into the hem of the robe. And we imagine that these bells were to announce the movements of the priests inside that part of the tabernacle complex where the regular worshipers could never go. We jump back into the text at verse 27. They also made the coats woven of fine linen for Aaron and his sons, and the turban of fine linen, and the caps of fine linen, and the linen undergarments of fine twined linen, and the sash of fine twined linen, and of blue and purple and scarlet yarns embroidered with needlework, as the Lord had commanded Moses. They made the plate of the holy crown of pure gold and wrote on it an inscription, like the engraving of a signet, Holy to the Lord! And they tied to it a cord of blue to fasten it on the turban above, as the Lord had commanded Moses. These verses correspond to the instructions given in Exodus 28, 36-43 and they described the manufacture of the tunics and turban. Finally, in the concluding section, we hear about Moses' inspection of all the assembled and prepared items and materials. We pick up the story at verse 32. Thus, all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was finished, and the people of Israel did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So they did. Then they brought the tabernacle to Moses, the tent, and all its utensils, its hooks, its frames, its bars, its pillars, and its bases, the covering of tanned ram skins and goat skins, and the veil of the screen, the ark of the testimony with its poles and the mercy seat, the table with all its utensils and the bread of the presence, the lampstand of pure gold and its lamps with the lamps set and all its utensils, and the oil for the light the golden altar, the anointing oil, and the fragrant incense, and the screen for the entrance of the tent, the bronze altar and its grating of bronze, its poles and all its utensils, the basin and its stand, the hangings of the court, its pillars and its bases, and the screen for the gate of the court, its cords and its pegs, and all the utensils for the service of the tabernacle for the tent of meeting, the finely worked garments for ministering in the holy place, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons for their service as priests, according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So the people of Israel had done all the work. 
And Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it, as the Lord had commanded. So had they done it. Then Moses blessed them. It'd be difficult to miss the central idea being communicated here. The people did precisely as the Lord had commanded. Then Moses blessed them. When everything is set up the way it is supposed to be, then blessings flow down and go out the way they were meant to do. God can always be relied on, but you need a covenant mediator doing what he is supposed to do, and you need a covenant community doing what they are supposed to do. And for this moment, in this snapshot, everything is functioning the way it should. Instructions have been given and followed to the letter. The people have done just as the Lord commanded them, and they are blessed. Thanks be to God. Amen. Pastor Paul, I want to come back to what you said there at the end. Help us understand the connection between obedience and blessing. I see it, but I want to make sure that we are understanding that in the right way. Yeah, it's easy to get this wrong. So let's slow down here and, and work our way through this. First of all, these stories here in the latter half of Exodus are showing us the the architecture of spiritual life and worship. We are literally watching this thing, the, the tabernacle, being built. And of course, the tabernacle is based on a heavenly blueprint. So in some way, we are seeing how things are supposed to be. And you kind of want to press pause here because things aren't going to stay this way for very long. The rest of the story of the Old Testament is basically about how the people couldn't keep this up. They distorted the design. They failed in their duties. And they were constantly forfeiting and squandering their blessings. But that's a story for another day. Here, the connection is being made explicitly and obviously between obedience and blessing. Count how many times in this chapter you get some version of the line, as the Lord commanded Moses, right? So they made the priestly garments as the Lord commanded Moses. That's verse one. They made the effort as the Lord commanded Moses. That's verse five. We could go on and on and on. The point is that absolutely everything in this story was done as the Lord commanded Moses. And so the people have positioned themselves by the end of the story to receive a blessing. All right, that's the basic design. God designed the universe to receive the blessings of heaven through the obedient intercession of his covenant people. That, that's been the plan from the beginning. That was the plan for Adam and Eve. They were supposed to be under God and over everything else. They were supposed to be his vice regents, operating with full authority and, and with full access to the storehouse of blessings. But of course, they fell. And in their fall, the world fell under the curse. The curse is just the absence of blessing, like how darkness is the absence of light. So here in this story, a channel is being reopened through which light and blessing may once again pass. This is like that Stargate thing you were talking about a few weeks ago. Yes, as a metaphor, right? Yeah. The, the, the tabernacle is like a Stargate. It is a portal that potentially can facilitate the movement of blessings from God to human beings down here on earth. But in the Old Testament, this gate is very precarious because the people are very fickle in their obedience. 
Now, in the New Testament, Jesus is the tabernacle. Jesus is the high priest. Jesus is the perfectly obedient covenant son. And and so the gate is always open. It's perfectly open. All the blessings, all the promises of God are yes and amen in him. And in fact, the end goal is actually for us too to be healed by his blood and through his spirit properly positioned so that we can serve alongside of him in this same priestly role and function. So to be clear, obedience isn't about getting saved. That's all of grace. But it is about positioning ourselves to receive and mediate blessings. It is about power and prayer. It is about taking hold of the things of heaven and releasing them down here on earth for the good of men and women. That is a part of the design. And that is a part of the ideal and promise of this passage Thanks be to God. Yeah, wow. That is amazing. Thanks for walking us through that. As always, friends, if you are looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. Or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes Store or on Google Play. And don't forget to tune in to Life 100.3 next Sunday morning for the next chapter in our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet